Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. Thank you for visiting my corner of the internet, whether you are a returning listener or stopping by for the first time. I hope you enjoy this instalment of the Curiosity Cabinet. It's the place where I mull over my love of natural materials and making and how I try to reconcile some of the environmental and ethical dilemmas I face in my making life. Thank you to everybody who contacted me after last episode to comment on my musings about stash as a wool pantry. Also, thank you to anybody who has recommended this podcast. I've recently received notification of several conversations where the podcast was referenced in answer to the request for podcast recommendations. A number of these conversations have been in languages I don't speak, so although I may be able to get the gist of the conversation, I can often not manage more than a tak, gracias or obrigada. But please know that I'm really touched every time I hear that you enjoy the content or that the topics I raise resonate with you. As always, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with underscore between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg aka Mrs M with hyphens between each word. I will link all this information and anything I mention in the podcast in the show notes, which are available on my website, Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet dot com, or in the Ravelry group of the same name. I'm publishing this episode a week later than normal, as last week my neighbour started what seems to be major renovation works. This involved a pneumatic drill thudding away all week, which I certainly didn't want to inflict on you. I think the workmen have moved from demolition to reconstruction, but there is still the occasional high-pitched whirring sound of an ordinary drill. But I didn't want to delay getting this episode out for another week, so apologies if you should hear any of that in the background. You may also hear some ponderous shuffling, as my cat is currently suffering the indignities of a cone collar. Dante, bless him, is not the brightest moggy, and he hasn't realised yet that he's a little wider than normal, and he keeps bumping into things. So apologies if there is a little more background noise than normal in today's episode. So what do I have in store? First up, there's an update on my no-nylon sock knitting experiment. I will also be talking about a couple of ways that I am engineering a handmade wardrobe that is as natural as possible while still appealing to my practical needs and my aesthetic preferences. There will also be a short book review and I will be finishing by sharing some gems of inspiration. So do pour yourself a cup of tea or your favourite tipple and let's get started. After being out with injury, I am back to sock knitting again, although I still need to ration my small needle knitting time. The current test pair on my needles is a pair of socks I am making with Whistlebear's Cuthbert Sock Yarn. This is a skein that uh, Alice of Whistlebear Farm sent me to try out. It is an 80% mohair, 20% Wensleydale blend, which has a very high twist. Whilst it has a bit of a halo, I am finding it works up very much like a blend we might typically use for socks. Whistlebear suggests using a 3mm needle, which I think is technically a US 2.5, but I am using 2.5mm or a US 1.5 set of DPNs. I'm only making minimal changes to my go-to sock patterns, unlike what I did with a black and mohair blend or Northern Yarns Pole Dorset. I'm using 60 stitches instead of 64, but my row tension is pretty similar to what I would achieve with, say, a West Yorkshire Spinner's Signature 4-ply or a German sock yarn. I can't wait to finish this pair and put them through full testing, but based on the first finished sock of the pair, I really like how this wool feels while knitting up and testing for fit. 
This blend certainly does a job where cosiness and heel structure are concerned. In terms of matching material to form, I think that for the next pair of socks that I knit with this blend, I might choose a pattern that has ribbing or even some cables running down the top of the socks, as I think this yarn will work really well with a pattern that has a lot of negative ease due to mohair's natural elasticity. Also, I really like the fit I'm getting with the traditional reinforced heel and gusset. I always use this method, so there's no dramatic difference in the construction with my other socks, but the result does feel particularly pleasing, which may be down to the nature of this blend. And while this has absolutely no bearing on the sock's durability, can I just say a word about the colours? Whistlebear's Cuthbert sock yarn comes in lustrous jewel colours as mohair takes a dye very well. I actually met Alice of Whistlebear Farm at Nottingham Yarn Expo last weekend, and she explained why the fibre takes colour so well. Apparently, while all fibres have scales, those on mohair are minutely tiny. This means the overall surface is much smoother, so that when the light reflects off this surface, there is minimal distortion, resulting in the very intense colours. The tiny scales also means minimal space for dirt to accumulate, which accounts for mohair's antibacterial properties. This means less washing. Now I know different people and cultures have different views on frequency of laundering garments, but laundry practices are as much a part of the environmental footprint of a garment as the raw material. In fact, manufacturers often refer to the significant footprint of the aftercare of garments to minimise their responsibility for sustainability issues. Whilst I don't buy that line, I'm all for minimising water and electricity usage at home, and I am definitely a fan of reducing my laundry load. So, if the antibacterial nature of mohair means I can wear my socks for a couple of times before popping them in the wash, what's not to like? Another fascinating snippet I picked up from Alice is that the weight of each skein may vary, not because of the length of the yarn in each skein, but due to the weight of each colour. Different colour pigments have different weights. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense, as colours are made of minerals, clays, carbon or biological compounds, all of which have a different mass but I just thought it was particularly fascinating. Anyway, just as with the black and mohair blend of my first test pair, there will be more mohair Wensleydale socks in my future, as I picked up another skein of Whistlebear's Cuthbert sock yarn whilst at Nottingham Yarn Expo. At £20.50 for 300 metres, or 325 yards, this yarn is certainly not the cheapest, but a single farm, hand-dyed yarn will never be that. However, when assessing the price, it is also worth factoring in the durability and lower laundry costs. I therefore shall definitely be feeding back how these socks wear. My quest for a natural wardrobe is progressing slowly but well, both in my knitwear and my sewing efforts. The more adept I become at sewing, the less I'm compartmentalising these activities. Last year I was just pleased if I managed to sew something that fitted, and although I still have much to learn and practice on the sewing front, I'm increasingly thinking of sewing and knitting as skills that can support each other in my quest for a more natural wardrobe that works for the practicalities of my life and meets my style preferences. Back in episode 4, when I was talking about my choice of sewing materials, I expressed some frustration about the limited choice when it comes to organic cotton in terms of fabric type, colours and prints. I mentioned that rather than be despondent, I would use creativity and skills building to get the look I want with the fabrics I feel I can use. I'm therefore carrying out some experiments with dyeing and printing, but I keep remembering a couple of things my dad used to say, like, don't ignore the blindingly obvious, and not all problems require an engineering solution. 
Those comments are actually highly relevant in the context of sustainability issues. I've worked and studied alongside many engineers and scientists, and they quite understandably love developing new materials and processes to address sustainability issues. These things also attract funding, PR and kudos. Tweaking systems or changing attitudes or perspective just aren't as sexy. So what does that mean for my quest for colour and pattern in my wardrobe? The blindingly obvious in my life is that I'm always cold. I wear cardigans, even wool ones, at least 10 if not 11 months a year. Whilst I might like a printed t-shirt in organic cotton, the reality is that for most of the year I'll be popping a cardigan or jumper over it. So why not let my knitwear play a major role in achieving the colour and pattern objective, particularly as to some extent it already does? I love knitting lace cardigans. They add frivolity and pattern both in terms of the lace motif and due to their contrast with the base layer. In fact, only the other week, a non-knitting friend commented on how she loved the wool and pattern on my cardigan. The wool was very lovely indeed. It was Blacker's four-ply classic in the undyed stone colour, which is very caress-inducing, even for non-knitters. The pattern was the Bon de Pain cardigan by Amy Christophers. I was actually very gratified when my friend commented that the lace pattern looked lovely and was accented by the background of the dark t-shirt I wore under it. Realising that lace knitwear can add patterns to my wardrobe, I decided that this year I would add the Autumn End Sweater by Alana Dacos. This pattern called for a sport weight yarn, which is still relatively uncommon in the British market. Instead, I used a natural dark Corridel in a DK weight, as I loved the shade and got the right tension over stocking stitch and the lace pattern after blocking. As an aside, on the topic of affordability, I bought this yarn from Wool Tops, the wool agent that John Arben uses. This company sells undyed yarn and fibre, but occasionally also has darker natural shades. Purchasing wool at this stage in the supply chain means it's a lot more affordable. This sweater cost me less than £35. But back to my quest for pattern. This design was a delight to knit. The lace repeat is pretty intuitive and the shaping of the garment is very elegant. I would say that this is most definitely a project you need to swatch for, as any changes you want to make to the length of the body and arms need to be factored in beforehand. The raglan shaping starts where you connect sleeves to the body and you need to be on the same row in the lace pattern to ensure the pattern works in the sweater's yoke. I'm delighted with my finished jumper. The pattern is gorgeous and it fits perfectly with the merest hint of positive ease. This positive ease of course means that I'm not getting the same pattern effect as I would from a cardigan or sweater that I'd knit with negative ease. And as I used a DK rather than a sport weight, I didn't have to block it so heavily, which meant the negative space between my stitches didn't look quite so dramatic. I might have been disappointed that my sweater didn't look the same as the cover image of the pattern, but I had unintentionally achieved a different type of patterning. The pattern on my jumper has more of the feel of a damask cloth rather than, say, a block or screen printed pattern, and it is a look I like. Inadvertently, I have found another type of patterning that I can achieve through my knits, which I think is a good thing. I do intend to make this pattern again in the future using a lighter yarn. I know that some people don't like knitting the same pattern twice, but I like revisiting a pattern that I know works with a different material just to see how wool and form interact and what different looks I can achieve. In terms of adding pattern to my natural wardrobe, I'm also inching closer to using stranded colour work. 
I have always been wary of stranded colour work such as Fair Isle, as I couldn't get past how this technique emphasises vertical lines. As I have broad shoulders and an hourglass figure, the last thing I want to do is accentuate the width of certain places. But since finding some yoke patterns where the yoke sits on the shoulders rather than wraps around the shoulders, or all over patterns that feel more like tiles and stripes, I'm eager to explore patterns through colour work. The pattern that particularly drew my eye is Gudrun Johnston's Northdale from the second book of The Shetland Trader. The staggered rows of the diamonds help to break up the vertical element. What's more, this particular pattern has raglan shoulders, which means that there is a diagonal line that runs from the armpit towards the neck to help deflect attention away from the width of my shoulders. I would be interested to know, do you consciously use your knitting to add patterns to your wardrobe? And if so, are there any techniques that you find particularly helpful? As my dressmaking skills improve, I'm not only thinking of knitting and sewing as tools in my quest for a more natural wardrobe. My planning has also moved beyond thinking in terms of garments or even outfits to thinking about what are the elements I need to construct a wardrobe that works in light of material considerations, practicalities of my life and stylistic preferences. On the one hand, this means working out which styles will and won't be feasible with the materials I'm willing to use. On the other hand, it also means investing time and thought in the uninteresting and the invisible elements of my wardrobe, the pieces that actually help make it function. As I am eager to minimise synthetic and man-made fibres in my wardrobe, I am prioritising wool, linen and cotton, and wherever possible, organic cotton for my garments. Synthetic fibres are things like polyester, nylon or polyamide, lycra, aka elastane or spandex, and acrylic, all of which are made from oil. The term man-made fibre is typically used for fibres that are made from plants and are therefore biodegradable, but where the plant material needs to be treated with chemicals to create the thread. These fibres include viscose, modal, lyocell, rayon, cupro, bamboo, etc. Moving to a more natural wardrobe is a gradual process as it takes time, skills and knowledge. I am currently at this stage where I aim to avoid synthetics from my clothes, with the exception of stockings and underwear, and to minimise the use of man-made fabrics. So how does this play out in practice? The reality of always being cold means I wear tights almost all year round. And anybody who has worn tights under cotton knows that this fabric clings or rides up. On paper, the solution is simple. It involves lining cotton skirts and dresses with anti-static fabric or wearing slips. Shop-bought slips, whether full or half length, are usually made from nylon with lycra. This means they are revoltingly clingy and, worst of all, not breathable. Half slips also involve an elastic waistband, which I find incredibly uncomfortable. I loathe the elastic waist so much that I don't mind that my Marks & Spencer half-slip is on its last legs. That said, its imminent demise has certainly concentrated my mind. As shop-bought slips aren't an option, what about lining my garments? As I don't want to use polyester, the fabric options are silk, linen or a man-made fabric. I know that some people wouldn't consider silk for ethical reasons, but from an environmental perspective I don't have an issue with silk. However. I'm not made of money, and silk can't usually go in the washing machine. Also, I very much view silk as a luxury product. 
In other words, it's a material to be used sparingly and one for which I must definitely pay a fair price. That means the price that affords silk farmers and producers a fair wage. I have discovered from pulling tights on under linen skirts on chilly summer evenings that linen does not ride up or cling to tights the way cotton does. I would love to be able to use linen to line my garments, but so far I've not managed to find a source of smooth wool or lawn weight linen. If anybody knows of any stockist of such linen, preferably one in Europe, please do let me know. So it looks that for the time being, I need to rely on man-made fabrics for anti-static practicalities. I have tried a few types and my preference goes to something called Remsilk or Bember Cupro lining. This is a type of breathable rayon made from cotton linters. These are the fibres that protect the cotton seed and are a waste product from cotton production. From this perspective and the fact that Bremsilk is biodegradable, it sounds like a sensible choice. However, this fabric is also a rayon, i.e. it is a manufactured regenerated cellulose fibre. This is a real mouthful, but breaking it down, it means that rayon is a fibre that is made by using a plant-based raw material, dissolving it in chemicals to make a semi-fluid substance, pushing this substance through an implement much like a shower rose to create threads, and then re-solidifying them using more chemicals, and then spinning those threads. Now, you don't need to be a scientist to know that even though you're starting with a plant-based material, this process is energy and chemical intensive, so certainly not environmentally neutral. The upshot of this is that Brem silk has certain properties that are well suited to my needs, but that it is far from perfect. Therefore, I want to avoid it as much as possible, and where I can't, to use it as sparingly as possible. I could make a couple of half slips in Brem silk with a side slit for maximum movement. There are directions for how to make these on the internet and it looks relatively simple, but they all involve the loathed elasticated waist. So instead I've been thinking about how I can achieve the same result but dispense with the elastic. As it takes me several efforts to perfect the fit of a garment, my handmade wardrobe is based on two skirt patterns, a shift dress pattern and a waisted dress pattern. This means I'm working with a limited number of shapes and lines. I therefore decided that for the waist dresses, I would test a detachable skirt lining. I therefore cut a lining based on the skirt pieces of the pattern, just as if I was lining the dress. Once I had stitched the sides together, I added the narrowest of waistbands using bias binding. I hoped that this would be a way of adding just enough body to the waist so I could sew press studs or snaps both to the lining and the waist seam of the dress. As long as I take meticulous care to always line up the studs properly, I should be able to make the same lining work for multiple dresses. Finally, I hemmed the skirt and finished the side opening that would normally have been attached to the inside of the zip to tidy it up a little. For modesty reasons, I also lined the bodice of the dress, but did so with cotton lawn, which is cut just long enough to cover the waist of the detachable lining. I am still road testing this approach, so I shall let you know how it works out, but so far it is promising. As the inside of skirt waistbands are stitched close, I will not be able to use the same solution for my skirts. Instead, I'm thinking of making a half slip cut from the pattern pieces of the slimmest of my A-line skirts. Once again, I plan to use bias binding to finish the waist. I may use the same on the opening where the zip would normally go too. Then, drawing on a silk skirt I had many years ago, I think I will use a row of small hook and eyes as a closure. 
I am waiting for a meter of lining fabric to arrive so I can test this solution to my skirt lining dilemma. Of course, I'm also hoping that this type of half slip will work under my shift dress as it has quite an A-line skirt, but I'm half expecting the waistline to be vis visible under lighter cottons. On that basis, I'm prepared for the challenge of making myself a 1930s-1940s style slip. One that is shapely so it follows the lines of the body, but still loose enough to fit over the head without closures. As a full slip involves fitting a bodice, this is bound to involve trial and error, so I have started the process of making a toile for the bodice, i.e. a camisole. This is a whole topic in its own right, as it involves several new-to-me techniques, not to mention a lot of patience and body kindness. So I'll keep that ongoing adventure for another podcast. The last couple of sections of this podcast dealt with making clothes from scratch and touched upon the curiosity, skills and trial and error involved in engineering a wardrobe that works for me. Both these topics lead quite nicely into a review, or rather some musings, about a new book I recently read. Folk Fashion, Understanding Homemade Clothes, is a work of designer, maker and researcher Amy Twigger-Holroyd. I first came across Amy's work when she was tweeting and blogging about a re-knitting project she was leading in which she led a number of workshops as part of her doctoral research. In these workshops, she guided and facilitated participants in remaking a knitted garment and documented both their learning and well-being. Folk Fashion is a book based on her PhD research and looks at the resurgence of the making and mending clothes from a well-being and sustainability perspective. Don't let the term PhD research put you off. This book is written in a very accessible, engaging style. Amy considers how more active engagement in producing our own clothes can enhance our sense of well-being, but also deals with aspects like the sense of disappointment with finished products and the lingering association of homemade and repaired clothes with poverty. She also queries whether making your own clothes is indeed more sustainable than buying, highlighting opportunities but also risks and pitfalls. As someone who has been looking at sustainability issues and has been making for years, and who also mulls over the tensions between making and ethical environmental concerns, reading folk fashion felt like strolling around my neighbourhood. There was a lot in it that felt very familiar, affirming and safe. But exploring familiar territory with a new companion also meant discovering new nooks and crannies and seeing features from a different perspective. Much in the book felt familiar in that Amy acknowledges the challenges of making and the issue of resource usage when practising new skills. She also highlights the excitement of new skills and how we can sometimes get carried away. Amy also touches on the important but thorny sustainability issue of making not becoming another form of linear consumption. What we don't want to do is just swap shopping for new items with making from new resources. As such, she focuses heavily on keep and use strategies like mending and remaking, and in her case particularly, re-knitting. The book is validating in that it is wonderful to see that somebody considers it worthwhile to research what we as private knitters and sewers do. That may sound trivial, but Amy acknowledges that roaming around the commons of fashion rather than living within the narrow commercially sanctioned fashion sphere requires confidence and can be scary. She uses the metaphor of commons of fashion to reflect the broad range of clothing styles, both historic and modern, materials and methods that are available to us once we step outside of the commercial fashion sphere. 
Whilst I've never felt a particular need to look fashionable, I am critical of my sewing skills, want to look polished, and often fear that I might look frumpy in homemade items or embarrass my husband. In her five strategies, or her call to actions, Amy actually encourages us to seek and give validation to strengthen folk fashion and enhance its potential. If you have in any way started down the route of making your own clothes, mending or remaking, reading this book will provide a lot of validation that what we are doing is worthwhile on many levels, no matter what our level of skills are, or how slow our productivity is, or even why we started this journey. The book makes roaming the commons of fashion, making mistakes, taking baby steps feel safe. Not as in giving us licence not to reflect on the challenges and the contradictions or to ignore the risk of a rebound effect, like splurging after restrictive wardrobe projects. Instead, it treats the issues of identity creation through clothing, keeping unworn clothing for sentimental reasons rather than extreme purging, and the trials and error of our own making with compassion. The book is not dogmatic about the sustainability angle of making your own wardrobe, Instead, it focuses heavily on well-being and recognises that even if we may not set out to do so, quiet makers can inadvertently become players in a quiet revolution, creators of disruptive change. There are new insights and perspectives for me everywhere in this book. I've generally avoided using the term slow fashion because as a linguist, it has always felt like an oxymoron. Amy does two things, though, that make the term much more usable to me. She uses a metaphor of fashion as common land, a rich ecosystem of materials, method and styles that we can explore if we cultivate the skills and confidence to do so. In this context, she draws parallels with guerrilla gardening. Now, as a gardener, a grower of food and an avid cook, this metaphor really works for me. Growing my own vegetables and making my own food opens up a wealth of opportunities, flavours and dishes, thanks to things like heritage seeds, traditional techniques or preserving methods that are not compatible with industrial food processing or commercial supply chain management. Amy also strongly emphasises the creativity that goes into the keep and use aspect of fashion as much as the acquire or make stage, much like Kate Fletcher, whose book Craft of Use I mentioned in episode 2. For example, Amy's discussion of wardrobe projects like Project 33.3 or Restrictive Wardrobe Projects also provides useful insight and allowed me to see my own three-year wartime wardrobe challenge as an example of an act of making in its own right, a creative project and an example of the craft of use. Amy extends the idea that we can derive well-being from the creativity of making a single garment to well-being from creatively engaging with a wider aspect of our life. The re-knitting sections of the book certainly set me thinking about my own relationship with remaking. Amy is right in highlighting that remaking is a particularly disruptive act to the commercial view of fashion. As a knitter, I unravel and re-knit wool if I find a cardigan or sweater doesn't suit me or just doesn't work as I intended when I knit it up. But this re-knitting tends to happen in the first few years of a material's life. As a newbie sewer, I find I'm also doing this with my sewing makes. I also darn and patch like a maniac to extend the life of a garment. I don't really remake, though, as a way of responding to my changing tastes, as I've never been particularly fussed about being a la mode. In my life, clothes tend to fall out of my wardrobe, either because they have been worn to threads or due to dramatic swings in size. 
However, as my dressmaking skills improve, I increasingly find I'm considering things like ease of modification when picking a pattern design to allow for potential changes in size. The book doesn't set out to address all issues relating to a more sustainable wardrobe. For example, it doesn't really touch upon the economic implications, both here and abroad, of a less linear consumption pattern. Although it doesn't steer away from the less pleasant observation that making can be just another form of consuming, it is an optimistic book and ends with five strategies that can be used as a call to action, not only to gain maximum personal enjoyment from our homemade clothes, but to be part of a groundswell that can help build political, environmental and economic change. Folk Fashion, Understanding Homemade Clothes by Amy Twigger-Holroyd is published by IB Taurus and I believe the recommended retail price is £15, although this was a birthday gift so I wouldn't commit to that. I would definitely recommend this book and I will certainly be rereading it as the author packs a lot into 200 pages. Finally, I should like to finish with some inspiring gems. As it is November, I have to mention Wovember, a project that encourages us to share and show our appreciation for wool. The focus of this year's Wovember is Woolness, or where wool meets wellness. I would encourage you to check out the Wovember website, which is simply wovember.com, as it contains many delightful tales of how wool impacts on physical health, mental well-being, community and landscape. And if you are on Instagram, do check out the hashtags wearwoolforwovember, November Insta Challenge and November 2017. A lot of knitters and spinners are sharing little gems of how wool has helped improve their life, forge friendships, improve skills and create beautiful and meaning objects along the way. If you're not a knitter, I still recommend Wovember as it is incredibly inspiring and raises some interesting perspectives about material and making. Also, if you know of any similar projects for other making activities and materials, I would love to hear about them. Are there any similar depositories or threads around which makers show their love for a material, the form of making and the landscape and people that make it possible? I would also like to share details of two people on Instagram whom I find incredibly inspiring and whose approach to making really resonates. Marilla Walker is a sewing pattern and textile designer, but I think of her first and foremost as a maker with endless curiosity. Her Instagram feed includes wonderful examples of her figuring out how to make things with materials she has easily to hand and without expensive tools. Earlier this year she was looking at making shoes, and recently she has also started weaving, which has involved figuring out how to make a loom with scraps of wood in her garage. You can find her at Marilla Walker on Instagram, and, that, and that's Marilla with two L's, and at marillawalker.blogspot.co.uk. The other person I heartily recommend you follow is Sarah C. Sweat. She is a weaver and also draws, but most of all I love her impish joy in the act of making with simple tools. For example, rather than work on big, multi-headled looms, Sarah has been exploring weaving on a simple backstrack loom, the type you might see rural workers use in South America. This has involved her making large window panes and hangings from weaving narrow linens panels or weaving narrow pieces of cloth that she turns into simple but usable skirts. She also documents her making in drawings, which make for a fun, slow journal of making. You can find her at Sarah C. Sweat, and that's Sarah with an H and Sweat with double T on Instagram, and on her blog, afieldguidetoneedlework.com. On these inspiring notes, I think I will sign off for today. 
So whatever your craft is, or whatever medium you enjoy using, I wish you a lot of curiosity and delight with your making. Take care and speak to you very soon.